The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericahealth.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Loss helps us define our lives. By allowing our grief to matter, we discover our own strengths and embrace our authentic selves. Welcome to Good Grief with your host, Cheryl Jones. Get ready to be inspired, to create a deeper life, to make your time on Earth much more meaningful. Now, here is Cheryl Jones. Hello, I'm your host, Cheryl Jones, and I want to welcome you to Good Grief, where we talk each week about the transformations that can come from loss. Today, I'm talking with Dr. Karen Wyatt. Karen's the author of the book, What Really Matters? Seven Lessons for Living from the Stories of the Dying, and spent most of her 25-year career in medicine caring for patients in challenging settings, such as nursing homes, hospices, free clinics, and homeless shelters. Her work with patients who were facing the end of life inspired her to write What Really Matters, which describes the spiritual lessons she learned from her hospice patients. Dr. Wyatt also hosts End of Life University, an online interview series that features conversations with experts who work in all aspects of -of end-of-life care. She's widely regarded as a thought leader in the effort to transform the way we care for our dying in the U.S. In addition, she's valued for her application of spiritual principles to illness and health care and teaches that in order to live life fully, we must each overcome our fear of death and embrace the difficulties that life brings us. And you can learn more about her at www.karenwyattmd.com. Welcome, Karen. Thank you, Cheryl. It's a pleasure to be here with you. I'm I'm really happy to have you and and uh, especially to talk about both your book and your end of life university. You know, I uh, of course read a lot of books as part of um, uh, doing this show. And what I feel is so special about your book is um, the blend of kind of um, description of things to pay attention to with end of life and story and your own heartful um, heartful encounter with these lessons. Uh, it really deepened the book for me so much to have you a voice in the book and the other people you, um, you talked about. I thought that was very, very moving and beautiful. Oh, thank you, Cheryl. Uh, yeah, that it, it felt to me like I was writing the book actually on three different levels in a way, <laughs> telling stories, uh, reflecting on the stories and what could be learned from them, and then talking about my own journey at the same time. You know, I know at the beginning of the book, uh, you, I guess in the introduction actually, you described that you collected these stories as you were working with people in hospice care and at the end of their lives, and then they kind of... Um, I wanted to use the word gestated for a long time, um, yes. uh, you know, that, uh, which, which I've found in my own life. Sometimes things take a very long time to flower 
uh, and I can kind of see why it took the time or, you know, when I'm looking back, but not when I'm looking forward. So um, can you talk a little bit about what finally brought you to to um, complete the work, complete the book and and um, put it into the world? Yes, I I started writing the book about 12 years before I actually finished it, and I had written several of the stories um, even while I was um, in hospice with the patients. I was actually writing some of the stories as I went along because I just knew this; it was so profound. I, I needed to write a book about it, but I really got hung up on some of the lessons. I started stumbling over some of the lessons, things like living in the present moment. I found that, you know, there were some of the lessons that I had observed. I felt like I didn't know how to describe living that lesson in my own life. And Mm -hmm. then my friend said to me, you know, you have to learn all of these and live these before you can write about them. (laughs) Suddenly (laughs) it became clear, oh, that's right. (laughs) I have to actually know this from lived experience before I will be able to effectively write it. So I kind of put it aside for a while and I just went about living my life. And at first I thought, oh, I'll I'll probably never get there. I'll never figure this out. I'll never write it. But eventually, after 12 years, um, I actually actually had an encounter with a woman who's a psychic who said to me, there's something you're supposed to be doing that you're not doing that you put away a long time ago, and you need to to take that out again. And I knew instantly, oh, that's the book. So I kind of took that as a clue that I think I'm ready now. And then, indeed, I was able to I was able to write the book in nine months when I started up the second time after that twelve years of gestation. Once it was kind of ready to be birthed, that's that's a very interesting amount of time it took, don't well, you think? Yeah, that actually. <laughs> I hadn't thought of that until, until I heard myself say it. Oh, that is interesting. Yeah, a, re- a real birthing. Um, it does have a very alive quality too. I have to say. Um, sometimes descriptive books lose that, I feel, uh, you know, and, and yours doesn't. It, um, it, because it may, partly because it involves story and involves your story, and partly just because of the richness of the language, I think. Uh, I just was moved so often by the way that you were describing these things. But that's, an, that's a very, um, you know, I was wondering as I was, I was getting ready to talk with you today, I think about a lot. Can can we invite people into exploring these um, these questions of end of life, loss, grief, um, without them having had um, deep experience with it? And um, you're saying for you, you had to really uh, whatever happened in those years helped you to actually live it. But I wondered if you think people can, how, how can people engage who haven't had those, you know, profound losses or uh, in, haven't had their own lives touched? I think they may have to engage by just looking at their own fears of death and in some ways looking at, at their own avoidance of death. So even if they don't have the history of of pain that they can go through as a as a doorway there there is pain i think in our minds around the idea of death and there um we de- we certainly reject it and avoid it so i think that's one one doorway we can use is just to look at what what am i afraid of and what do i fear about death and mm-hmm. can i 
can I go through that and get closer to it in, in order to examine it? Uh, that that uh, resonates with me, and also just that um, you know the people that I've that I've worked with who um, are facing illness, usually cancer. That's the field I work in um, most. Um, when it comes down to it, they're actually more afraid of illness and dying, uh, which I think we carry around when we've never been ill. You know, yes. the, the horror people feel at the idea that they will ever be sick, when in fact most of us will be. That is so true, because I discovered that in hospice, that so many of the patients uh, who were in their last weeks of life had actually found some peace, because they were they were there, they were at the place they used to fear, they were now there, and found that with, you know, with appropriate help for their symptoms, um, they they could experience it and go through it, and it wasn't as difficult as they had imagined it might be. You remind me of my mother the day of her death. She she had a very high pain tolerance, which helped her. Uh, she, had, she was conscious uh, completely, and she looked at me and said, I thought this would be really terrible, but actually it's not so bad. <laughs> you know, <laughs> she, with great surprise, you know, knowing that she was in fact dying. Um, it's not, the map isn't the territory, is it? Exactly, exactly. And because it's so unknown to us, we really don't know how to think of it or how to even imagine it until we're there in that place. So it makes me curious, uh, since it sounds as if you, you really learned these lessons through your work with people at the end of their lives, what originally inspired you to work in um, hospice and, cl- and um, nursing home settings, uh, settings in which you encountered the end of people's lives? Well, um, I was trained in family medicine, family practice, and I started out just doing primary care medicine when I was a brand new doctor, but about three years into my practice, my father committed suicide, and that was an absolutely devastating loss for me, Um, of course, you know, losing my father, but also as a doctor, it was very... um, it really pulled the rug out from under me because I treated depression. I treated patients who were suicidal and I had helped, I had helped several, several patients through that and couldn't help my own father. So Mm -hmm. his death really made me question everything, (laughs) made me question my whole career choice and what I was doing and what kind of daughter am I? What kind of doctor am I? And, um, when I wasn't really, I wasn't coping well with that grief and guilt. I just wasn't finding a way to to function very well within it. I finally got the idea that maybe if I volunteer for hospice and if I if instead of I, I realized I'd been rejecting and avoiding my own grief and pain and hoping it would just go away. And I decided, what if I volunteer for hospice and in, and mm-hmm. I go the opposite direction and immerse myself in pain and see what happens then. I'll immerse myself in death and dying and grief. And the moment I got there and started seeing patients, I knew I was in the right place. I knew that was the place I would heal, but also the place I was meant to be, the work that I was meant to do. That's very interesting to me that you sort of um, avoided as long as you could and then realized, nope, I've got to go the other, I have to go towards. Um, totally different experience of mine, but I that that um, 
describes pretty accurately what happened with me about facing my wife's cancer. Uh, you know, we do we do run for as long as we can, I guess, but mm. eventually um, it doesn't uh, it doesn't work. We have to turn around and face it, huh? Yeah, I remember that I would wake up every day thinking, one of these days, very soon, I'll wake up and everything will be like it used to be. I will feel normal again. I'll feel like myself again, and I'll be back where it was before. One of these days, that's going to happen. And suddenly, I think it was at some point, I just realized, wait a minute, that's not going to happen. <laughs> like <laughs> This was a life-changing event. Everything is different, and I have to just accept that. And I have to now move forward with everything being different than it is and stop trying to go backwards and be where I was before. And that's sort of like the aha moment that I had that really helped me then to start actually processing and and actually working on things. Mm. I feel it would be a good moment for you to share a little bit so people can hear the voice of your book. And also because this is sort of, to me, where you ended up with that journey, um, what an it's what an amazing gift is this physical existence, you know, uh, and yet, would you share that? Um, I did. <laughs> I didn't bring. I didn't, I didn't oh. have the book with me. I can run and would, grab it. Would you? Would you like me to read it? Yes, uh, if you would. Okay. Thank you. No problem at all. What an amazing gift is this physical exist- existence we've inherited. Yet life is a gift that will not last. These bodies of ours are destined to fade and wear down as we proceed through time, using up the physical learning potential that was bestowed upon us at birth. Then, in the latter days of life, a gradual shift in focus must occur away from the pursuits of the physical world toward the truths of the spiritual realm. As we lose certain functions and capacities on the physical level, we have an opportunity to gain even more intangible wisdom and understanding. I, you know, I, um, uh, this this affects me very much because I've been receiving some training in something called managing cancer and living meaningfully, which is, is for it's in uh, the, the main program is in Toronto, Canada. And um, they work only with uh, people who've, who've heard uh, we, there's nothing more we can do for you. And um, the, the, way in which people are in sort of a sacred space of learning when they hear those words, if they have support, if they have a way to walk through that, connects with what I what I hear in that passage. Oh yes, absolutely. I love I love that term, the sacred space of that time. And I felt it so clearly with hospice patients because people who come to hospice have decided that they're done seeking curative treatments and that's actually a crucial moment for them because they they take their attention away from from treatment and cures and going to doctors and are able to finally turn around and look at, oh, life, this is what life is. This is the life I have right now. These are the people I have around me that I love. And suddenly 
their their focus changes, um, but suddenly they're in that sacred space that you described where they can they can transform many many aspects of their life in that time. One thing I noticed uh, in reading the book was how many of the stories you described had to do with transforming relationship. Um, you know, um, severances that were repaired or uh, ways that people had held back from each other that they now could go forward with or um, quite close relationships that that gained a kind of um, insulation and, and beauty uh, as one walked the other. Um, d- does that feel to you like a very central aspect of what happens for people? Uh, this, yes. this sense of relationship, getting the, getting the main stage? Yes, very much so. I would say that that theme repeated itself over and over again with patients even of all ages that I took care of because I took care of some younger patients as well and, um, you know, patients up to the age of 95. But in nearly every case, there that turning away of the, of the focus almost always turned to the, pe- the people in my life and who is around me and how have I related to them and what what do I need to repair so that I can die in peace? And uh, did you also, uh, I, I want to talk more about that after our upcoming break, but do you also sometimes encounter people who who just don't find that space before they their lives are over, who, who for whatever reason just can't allow that? Yes, uh, definitely. There were definitely some people who uh, who really struggled, and, and some who just didn't have enough threads of 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 healthy relationship in their life to begin with to draw to draw strength from and, and to work on. Some who were who were very alone and remained and remained that way up until the end. So I think that's um, that's. So interesting, just in terms of our culture, that um, I, I guess we're we're expected to sort of have people, but but it's not necessarily the focus we're supposed to maintain. We're supposed to be um, uh, accomplishing and uh, having big careers and making a lot of money and having a lot of things. So um, it's it's an interesting juxtaposition that then at the end of life. Uh, you know, uh, Andrea Levine said to me once, I've never met anyone who said they wish they worked more at the end of life. So true. Um, so there's the kind of reverse that happens, isn't there? Let's let's pick that up when we come back from the break, that relationship aspect and how people find their way to that at the end of life. And listeners, you can go find links to my website and social media at the Good Grief page at Voice America for Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn, Pinterest, the works. And to find Dr. Karen Wyatt, you can go to www.karenwyattmd.com. Back soon. Your life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health and Wellness. 
Follow the Voice America Talk Radio Network on Twitter. We're at Voice America TRN. You'll get the latest fix on what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and general happenings that you should know about at the Voice America Talk Radio Network. Now you don't have to miss anything when you're away from your home or office. Just go to twitter.com forward slash Voice America TRN or follow along with us at Voice America TRN, the Voice America Talk Radio Network. We're on the cutting edge of social media. Can you keep up? Every day, you hear so much about different aspects of the health and wellness field. One day, you hear one thing, and the next day, you hear something that contradicts what you heard the day before. How do you know what's right? Try tuning in to The Cutting Edge of Health and Wellness today with Dr. Neil Nathan. Our goal is to educate and explore this field with guest experts in order to help you take control of your health and well-being. Listen Fridays at 2 p.m. Pacific, 5 p.m. Eastern Time on Voice America Health & Wellness. Real Life Solutions, Voice America Health & Wellness. You are listening to Good Grief with Cheryl Jones. To reach Cheryl or her guest today, please call 1-866-472-5792. That's 1-866-472-5792. You may also send an email to Cheryl Jones at weatheringgrief.com. Now, back to Good Grief. Welcome back. I'm your host, Cheryl Jones, and I've been talking with Karen Wyatt, author of What Really Matters, Seven Lessons for Living from the Dying, and also host of End of Life University. Before the break, we were talking about that sort of uh, sacred relationship space that many people, not all, as we said, um, enter into when they know the end of life is coming. Um, I wonder if you can kind of... If someone comes to mind, you could talk about, um, I mean, there's a contrast, isn't there? Some people, when that doesn't happen, it's very painful, uh, in my experience. And when it doesn't happen, it does happen, it's incredibly beautiful. Um, are there people that come to your mind that you uh, have helped in that time that sort of um, exemplify those two contrasts? Well, one of my favorite stories and one of my favorite patients ever that I worked with was um, Ralph, who was, uh, I guess we would have called him a hobo back in the old days, but a vagrant who lived by the railroad tracks and had spent much of his life riding the rails. So he was a person who had no relationships in his life. He was he was he had just been on his own um, for most of his life, and he developed kidney cancer, a social worker was able to find an apartment for him to live in so that we could give him hospice care within this rundown apartment building. So he was a person who came in, and to us, it seemed like, oh, my goodness, this poor man, he has no one, he has nothing. Like, we will be it. We are his relationships right mm-hmm. now, which our staff kind of took on as um, as part of our our work. Like, we have to be here for him because we are who he has. Um, and there's a whole other story about him discovering that he could draw and starting to draw pictures, which was a really lovely part of the story, too. But in the end, when, when he did die, uh, because he had no family and no one claimed his body, um, he was cremated by the city and he was going to be buried in a pauper's grave. 
and our staff just felt like we didn't we didn't want that to happen. <laughs> we we didn't want that, so we decided to claim him and to have our own little funeral because we thought we were the only people in his life. Um, but it turned out we created this little funeral, and about thirteen people from the building he lived in came mm. to the funeral, and they were all people who had he had developed relationships with, unbeknownst to us, during the time that he lived there. He was there for about a year, and each person there spoke about how they knew him and what he meant to them and and what he had done for them, and we were stunned because we didn't even realize, here this man, this you know, this hobo who had never needed anyone in his life had been forming relationships at this at the very end of his life in this rundown building full of you know full of people who were barely barely making it, barely getting by. And uh, so it just showed me it's part of our human nature to be in relationship with other people. And um, the end of life somehow brings that brings that up for us and gives us that a desire for it, a desire to connect. What you've evoked with that is uh, when um, I, I was not, I was friends with my uh, first wife when she was diagnosed. We had been uh, together much earlier in life. And when she was diagnosed, I thought, oh, my God, now or never. <laughs> uh, and I, th- I think that may be a-, a part of it. Whatever you're afraid of about being intimate with people, you might be at that point more afraid of not being. Yeah. And I wonder if that isn't a factor for people, you know, that they're suddenly so. more afraid of never connecting and, and leaving life unconnected. And I think, too, our, the, our view of life tends to shrink down a bit from, view, for, you know, this man, Ralph, viewed the whole country. He could ride the trains anywhere he wanted to go, but suddenly his view was narrowed down to his little apartment in this building. And so suddenly he has to look around him and life consists of being in this one space and not being able to do very much more. And all of a sudden he has more energy to devote to the people who happen to be in that space as well. I, I, was, I spoke at a conference last week, uh, the End of Life Care and Legal Management Conference. And um, we were talking a lot about... Um, kind of the specialness of that time and that's what you and I are talking about too that the that other rules are are suspended often and uh there's kind of a deeper thing that happens and um you're applying that in your book uh to lessons of life um so I want to talk some about that because these seven seven lessons you noticed with dying people because there was that clarity of ending. Mm. Um, And yet it feels to me as if you're, well, you're explicitly inviting us to bring those lessons uh, into our living, um, you know, ongoingly and and for our entire lives. And uh, I wonder if you could talk about how you organize the lessons um, because you, you organize them by way of a sort of um, invitation to people to consider what Jesus said when he was dying, which I thought was interesting, because I wouldn't call your book a Christian book. 
uh, it's it's very spiritual in a broader sense, and yet that's a that's a really um, impactful um, thing in our society to imagine that uh, there's actually help in Christianity for the kinds of things you're talking about. Yeah, well, as I was as I was looking at the lessons and putting them together, um, I just remembered, and and I and I didn't intend for it to be a Christian book, and, but I remembered back from my old Sunday school days when I was a child. I remembered, you know, I was thinking, I, I was seeing these seven lessons that were repeating themselves, and that I was finding in the stories of my patients, but then they were having a profound impact on me, and then I thought wait a minute, when Jesus was on the cross, he was a dying man, and I, I, I had to get some, I had to look, Google it to find out what were the seven, didn't he make seven statements on the cross? I had to Google <laughs> it to see what those were, and when I started to put it all together, it just seemed, it just seemed like a profound insight to me that, you know, I, I, I do view Jesus as one of our great spiritual teachers, mm-hmm. and, and I suddenly realized he was in the process of dying, he had a, a you know prolonged suffering during that dying. But if if I could utilize what he said, the words he said on the cross, and use that as the organizing principle for the lessons, and, you know, suddenly that's what I started putting together in my mind. And once I saw it that way, then I couldn't leave it out. It, it seemed too important to me as an insight, uh, even though some people have have maybe misjudged the book because of the presence of those those words from the cross but you know you know I wondered about that because um if I take myself I my father was a minister but uh I left organized religion a long time ago and yet I found it very impactful to think of that teaching there are lots of the teachings you know, for instance, turn the other cheek has a lot of meaning to me. And, uh, you know, uh, some things I grew up with, lots of meaning. And that sense of um, someone through their suffering teaching us about suffering and living, uh, It you gave me a liberation for that. But I could imagine that other people on both sides of that fence, you know, you might not be considered Christian enough for the Christians, some Christians, and... Um, too Christian for some non-Christians, but for me, it, for me, it really worked. I just wondered what kinds of feedback you've actually gotten about that aspect of the book. Yes, I have. I have been rejected by people on both sides. <laughs> I would say, but you know, I stuck with my guns about this. I, I stuck with it because somehow, I guess, the moment that it came to me, it felt so insightful and almost as you said. You know, I. I left the church that I was brought up in as a child. I've never been back. I've never wanted to go back. But um, to be able to recapture some of the teachings of Jesus that resonate with me and to find that, oh, it fits, it's, it's just, it fits with our day-to-day lives. It fits with what I'm seeing people live in their lives. That, for me, was also a reclamation, I guess, as you described it, that I just breathed a sigh of relief, like I can welcome some of this back in, and there is a place for it. It does fit, and there's a way to almost be comforted by it. And I guess I felt like it gave validity to what I was seeing um, my patients experience at the same time. I I think one of the things that was meaningful for me is to uh, 
actually uh, incorporate the fact, you know, it's all, it's the way it was always described to me, this being on the cross thing <laughs> was sort of as a teaching, right? There he is and he's teaching. But the way that you incorporated it, there he was dying. There he was having the epiphanies that a person might have when they are up against their own death. I found that very meaningful, just just human to human, um, the human aspect. Um, and uh, as you said, suffering. So I want to read this um, this part of your book about that, which um, really stood out. The next and perhaps most difficult concept for us to under- understand is that suffering is a part of life. In our own human growth and development, each new stage we achieve requires up to us to give up something from the previous stage, enduring loss as we struggle to move forward and master new skills. The toddler gives up crawling and accepts the pain and frustration of repeated falls in order to learn to walk, and the teenager gives up the security of home and accepts the risk of rejection in order to find an individual identity in the world. Each new accomplishment requires the loss of something previously cherished. Furthermore, without these losses and the suffering they entail, there would be no growth, no progress in this human life. As we've already seen in all of nature and human existence, suffering and death are essential in order to break down the old and make way for the new. And that was, for me, one of the most profound lessons that I would say I learned uh, from just from observing dying patients was the fact that once once I once I turned my own sights around and saw that you know suffering is meant to be part of this life, and so stop trying to avoid it, stop trying to run away from it or control it or numb it or diminish it, but just accept it and embrace it and allow it to bring in whatever it is that I need, that I could learn from it. Um, that changed everything for me. It is, I think it's M. Scott Peck in The Road Less Traveled. The first line is, life is hard. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> you know, uh-huh. that once, <laughs> once you accept that, you can, uh, you can move forward. You're not dodging uh, that fact. And, and this passage is very much about that too, isn't it? Yes, very much. And that was so true of me struggling with my dad's death. You know, and not wanting to accept that this is just what happened. <laughs> this is just what happened in my life, and I have to, I have to keep going with this new reality in my life and accept that, accept the pain of it, and the and the depth of it too. I mean, that I, I haven't had that experience, but I just, I I just um, imagine it to be such a um you know kind of um pulled to the depth place um that even another death wouldn't wouldn't um bring as much question of oneself and as much turmoil as a death through through violence uh against self or you know murder too has that quality of just yeah. r- ripping us apart yeah. Yeah, yes, definitely. Definitely. 
I actually was at the dentist this morning and the uh, dentist knows me. I've been with him a long time and uh, he told me his assistant, uh, he was telling his assistant about what I do and he left the room and she said, two years ago, my son was murdered. And all of a sudden we were having a very deep conversation, which of course I couldn't continue because I then had stuff in my mouth but <laughs> you know when 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 death is invited in and especially that kind of traumatic death you're just right there immediately in that depth of human experience yes i cuz i think we can all some even if, if we haven't experienced it we can all empathize with what what that pain must feel like and what it must be like to be in that person's shoes and in that space and it's definitely raw, <laughs> raw and intense pain. And now, all these many years later, having undergone, you know, having found your way to hospice, working with the end of, of life as you do, where does that sit with you now? Your loss of your father in the way that you did and... Well, it's interesting because one of the um, stumbling blocks for me was trying to make sense of of his death. I wanted to be able to find some sort of meaning in it, and I just could not find that. And I finally gave up and decided I, it's not there. I won't find it. But it's funny, um, the day after writing this book, which was very therapeutic and healing for me, in fact, to do the writing, um, the day I, I received a box of, bo- of the books from my publisher, and I opened that box, and the first words out of my mouth were, look what we did, Dad. And then I, oh. I heard myself say that, and then I realized, oh my oh. gosh, you know, this is the meaning of my dad's death in some ways. This is part of that meaning, is that my life was transformed. I got um, shifted to a completely different trajectory, completely different path in my life, and um, and what has come from that has partly been because of his death, and so that is part of the meaning of his death, and and that gave me an answer to that painful question I've held all those years. But the other thing I hear in that is such a healing between you and him uh, that that he's in your heart. And and when you get the book, you say, "Look what we did." Um, you know, that's um, that's very moving. Um, that's that's so true. Because as I was writing the chapter on forgiveness, what I had to recognize is that I needed to forgive my dad for taking mm-hmm. his life, and that's one of the things I had been um, shielding myself from that I had not looked at until I started writing that chapter. Let's pick up that that thread when we get back from our next break. Uh, Listeners, you can go to my website, weatheringgrief.com, or the Good Grief Host page to find Karen Wyatt, MD. Go to www.karenwyattmd.com, and we'll be back after the break. Your life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. 
We're making it easier to listen to the Voice America Talk Radio Network wherever you go. In addition to listening live, you can check out information about your favorite talk show hosts, discover new talk show personalities, add shows to your list of favorites, and listen to all our show archives on demand. All from your iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android. Download it from the Apple App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market, and get ready to tune in. The Voice America mobile app, powered by Aircast. Explore the power of natural healing with Howard Strauss. Join us each week for an informative program that will help you learn effective healing methods using natural remedies. Howard's guests include top researchers, authors, and experts who will share their views on a variety of natural products and healing methods that really work. Tune in to The Power of Natural Healing with Howard Strauss, Mondays at 11 a.m. Pacific Time, 2 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. Real Life Solutions, Voice America Health and Wellness. You are listening to Good Grief with Cheryl Jones. To reach Cheryl or her guest today, please call 1-866-472-5792. That's 1-866-472-5792. You may also send an email to Cheryl Jones at weatheringgrief.com. Now, back to Good Grief. Welcome back to Good Grief. Karen Wyatt, a doctor and end-of-life educator, is with me today, and we've been talking about uh, her book, What Really Matters, and end-of-life lessons. Um, you know, before the break, Karen, we, we were talking about... Um, uh, and and this connected back to what you said at the beginning, you had to live it before you could write it, that uh, when you were writing about forgiveness, you had to face uh, forgiving your, your father for taking, for taking his life. And, and I could hear in, in that um, experience you had when you opened the box of books and you said, look what we did, that there's a, um, that there's a kind of a sense of completion there. Would that be a appropriate word to that forgiveness aspect? Yes, definitely, definitely. And um, writing, writing the chapter, writing the rest of the book too, and being able to move move beyond forgiveness um, was part of that entire process. But um, completing the book was really a, a resolution for me for all of all those issues and those questions that came up so you know that that connects with something that for me is uh um so vital for people to hear that you're not kind of when someone dies or you lose someone you're not sort of then frozen at that place for the rest of your life that there's an evolution, there's a there's a moving process to the relationship that still um, still has possibility. Yes, <clears throat> that's such a good way to describe it. You know, because as I think about how I thought of my dad and um, the feelings I had toward my dad, there was definitely an evolution over over all of those years. And as I did that work. And I'm imagining that also, I want to talk some about the end of life university that you, uh, that you host. I imagine that also is in a way, he's also in a way a part of that. 
Yes, definitely. It's interesting how many times when I listen to the stories of people I'm interviewing at End of Life University, it's, it's my experience with that traumatic loss of my dad that helps me relate to people I'm talking to on the phone and helps me understand exactly what... Um, what grief is and what loss is and, and what we're dealing with here as a society. And so in a, in a way, because you've had to face your own loss, it maybe I'm projecting this from my own experience, but um, it, it sounds as if that's maybe one way to put it is it's given you a mission for your life? Yes, I, I would say Definitely. It definitely has. It propelled me on this this road of doing hospice work and then really getting involved in end-of-life issues and, and recognizing, too, how much in denial our society as a whole is about death and dying and what a need we have to, to face it and look at it. Could you share with the listeners some, you know, the, the sorts of people you interview and, and give them a little bit of a feel for end-of-life university? All right, I've been I've been interviewing um, people who work in all sorts of aspects of the end of life, and so I've interviewed a number of um, practitioners who call themselves death midwives or death doulas, and mm-hmm. they're people trained to help a family when a loved one's dying to be there and help them through the final days of the dying process, and and also help them. I'll create rituals and special ceremonies to make that death meaningful and beautiful for them. And they can also help conduct home funerals for people, which I didn't, I hadn't, didn't know existed until I uh, did those interviews. I, I'd never heard about having a funeral at home. Um, mm-hmm. So that was very interesting to me. And um, I've worked with filmmakers and artists, uh, some artists who make cremation urns, and that's really their life passion to make special urns and special pieces of art for people to memorialize their loved ones. Um, Also, a lot of um, hospice and palliative care workers who work Mm -hmm. in hospitals. I've, I've interviewed doctors who are struggling with figuring out how to deal with death and dying as well. Uh, the the doctors who are are kind of trying to bring about a slow medicine sort of change. Well, yes, a, a couple of the doctors I've talked to recently are emergency room doctors who have been they've been a bit traumatized themselves by what they have to face in the in the emergency room and their desire. Um, you know, they end up having to do resuscitation on people that they know don't really want that, but because there are no legal documents um, saying do not resuscitate, the doctors have to perform it, and how mm-hmm. traumatic it is for them to be in that situation. Oh, that's that was a huge topic of con, uh, conversation at this, at this uh, conference I was at about um, end-of-life legal management, for sure. Uh, even when people have documents, for instance, if there's no post, an EMT has to do resuscitation. Yes. Uh, even and if there's a, uh, you know, a, a um, living will or, you know, an end-of-life document, if it's not a post, they can't follow it, uh, you know, which illuminated me. I had no idea. Yes, yes, because they need that doctor's signature on the document to make it an official order. 
uh, for them to follow. Yeah, so that so that's there's uh, we're kind of maybe all caught up in a sort of um, runaway train when it comes to end of life and and medical uh, medical care. Would you say? Yes, because medical technology has just taken off, and we can do so much now to keep people alive physically. And it's a little bit horrifying in a way because, you know, with, without consideration of what that person might have wanted or how they, the quality they might have desired for the last days of their life, you know, we can just, we can do invasive things to the physical body and keep it going. <laughs> yeah. That is not always the best thing to do. I've actually interviewed uh, several doctors who work in that area on my show, too, and um, they're really in the doctors who are aware that they don't want to uh, always do, you know, go to extraordinary measures. They're really in a tight spot. Um, I, I feel for them because the system is so geared towards that, uh, and there's, and, uh, you know, I've I've as a result, become such an advocate for at least having the papers. That gives you a chance. But also um, having a representative that really gets you and is going to be able to reinforce whatever it is that you've, that you've said you want. Yes, and speak on, on your behalf. And I think that's the, the central message that's been coming out of End of Life University is that all of us who are working in whatever arenas we work with that have to do with death and dying, we all are on the same team, essentially. And yes. so, in some ways, the issues that come up, like we need to have we need to have conversations about death and dying, we need to have documents, we need to choose our healthcare proxies carefully. Those issues. Are, are the issues for all of us to pay attention to and all of us to talk about at some time or, or another because it, it affects, it affects the gr- grief, you know, the, the grief that you deal with. If a loved one died in a way the family knows the loved one didn't really want, <laughs> died in a situation or a scenario, but there was no way to stop this medical train that was going down the tracks. You know, I'm remembering when my dad died. It was it was an accident, so it was very sudden. But um, my parents had had uh, deep conversation about what they wanted, and they had shared that with all of us. And it made that so easy to face, in the sense that it was very clear what ought to happen. You know, my my mother sort because his his uh, brain stem was severed, so he wasn't coming back. You know, at all. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think if those conversations ha- haven't happened, then the family is kind of going. They're they're not ready to let go. They you know because they haven't come to terms with the reality, and that that person has faced the reality and and decided what they want. I think that's a very hard emotional spot for people to be, be in at the end of life. That's so true. And uh, you're reminding me, um, my mom died just two years ago. And um, in fact, she and I had had 
really deep conversations about what she wanted at the end of life. And, and it was very true. The decisions that my brother and I had to make were much easier for us because we knew so clearly what she wanted and what she envisioned for herself. Absolutely. And, um, you know, there's some pretty good tools out there to to kind of figure those things out for ourselves, too. Um, there's... Uh, uh, what what is it? Um, I'm blanking the, the name. The, 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 the conversation project. project. There's a couple of card games that help that yes, uh, are quite good. So I, I, you know, the last thing I wanted to talk about with you before it's time for us to say goodbye for today is is just I'm trying to sort out whether this conversation uh, culturally has begun to shift, which is my experience, or whether that's just because I'm so immersed, <laughs> you know. But I have the sense, do you, that there is more out there about the end of life and about kind of coming to terms and facing death in order to live more fully? I definitely do have that sense. And I and again, I wondered that same thing. Is it just because I'm only interviewing people who are in this arena that it seems like there are a lot of people, but everyone I talk to says they're meeting more and more and more people and getting connected with more people who want to talk openly about death and dying and want to be prepared and plan ahead and mm-hmm. and uh and face it to face it fearlessly in a way so that they so that they can have some kind of control over the end of life. So that's that's promising and I think a book like yours that that um you know strongly uh puts out the message that we can actually live more satisfying lives through facing some of these questions is just really uh, really important that it's not just about figuring out what we want when we're, you know, at the end, but it's it's really figuring it out so that we can also bring that into life. I wanted to to end today with um, a beautiful passage from your book that um, well speaks to um, how we can incorporate some of this in our lives. And it goes like this, the breaking of your heart is necessary to allow the light of love to shine through more perfectly, illuminating the path that lies before you. When you can recognize this fact, then you cannot fail to participate in love, for you are made of love and breathe love in every moment. Only your hard-heartedness pre- prevents you from living love fully in your life. The light of love radiating through your broken heart enables you to see the divine in others, to recognize their souls, and connect with them in ways that can truly transform this world. Um, you reminded me so much of, of two of the people who really saw me through my wife's death, Stephen and Andrea Levine, who said over and over, let your heart break and the sooner the better. Hmm. Absolutely. And that's that's truly, I realize in my struggle with grief, I kept trying to heal the broken parts. <laughs> I kept thinking I had to put that all back together and make it look exactly like it was before instead of realizing I just need to accept the brokenness. I just need to accept that that's what, was, that's what needed to happen for me. Is it, is it Leonard Cohen, his line, um, uh, 
love the broken places, that's where the light shines through. Yes, yes. <laughs> Thank you so much for being with me today, Karen. It's It's been a complete pleasure, and I'm sure we'll uh, find ways to interact in the future. Yes, thank you, Cheryl. It's It's been my pleasure to talk with you. Uh, listeners, you can find Karen at www.karenwyattmd.com. Next week, I'll welcome Naomi Shihab Nye. Naomi, an award-winning and widely loved poet, wrote a book of poems about the loss of her father called Transfer. You will not want to miss hearing her talk about the book and hearing some of the beautiful, beautiful poetry in it. This has been Good Grief with Cheryl Jones. I look forward to being with you again next week for another meaningful conversation. Thank you so much for joining us for Good Grief. Please come back next Wednesday at 5 p.m. Eastern Time, 2 p.m. Pacific Time for another edition featuring your host, Cheryl Jones, on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. Have a meaningful week. Abre mi corazón.